0: And then when I would go to talk to developers, I wasn't just a business guy with an idea anymore. I was a business guy with a vision and execution and a 100 recordings of customer development conversations with a visual prototype that now the the engineer doesn't have to look at it and try and think through what it might look like. They can look at that and be like, oh, I can build that.
1: Thursday morning. Are you feeling the optimism? I don't know. I'm getting a lot of optimistic vibes about the rest of the year, about the business opportunities this year. We're going to talk about just one case here today. Real quick, the boss man's not on the show this week because he's on the phone with listeners of the podcast. You might have noticed we've been running our own ads for our service, which is flat rate recruiting. That's like a set fee instead of a percentage of salary. And we've been having a lot of success with it. A lot of you guys have been calling us up. And it's been cool. I've been like tooling around with the copy there. You can check it out at dynamitejobs.com/slash remote dash recruiting or just go to the website and click hire with us. Just old school grinding on sales pages and like speaking with with clients and trying to get a sense for the most elegant way to solve the problem. Typically, entrepreneurs are like thinking about their next hire many days or weeks and sometimes months in advance. And so the idea of this recruiting product is like. Schedule a call with Ian. And, you know, we've done this as a company almost 400 times now. So on that call, we just walk through what you're trying to accomplish. What's the budget? You know, can you go this way? Can you go that way? And we're seeing that we're able to say, like, okay, well, if that's your budget and you want someone in this time zone with this skill set, like, here's what you need to pay. You know, does that work for you? That's been leading to a ton of success. So we're really working on that concept. So I think if I were to redo the ad today, I would really try to assert this idea of like that 30 minute brainstorm session. So you can kind of see us try to grow that business in real time here on the pod. So, more on that in the coming weeks when Bossman gets off of sales calls. For now, let's visit an entrepreneurial story that was super instructive for myself. Today's guest is selling recurring subscriptions to relatively expensive software, and he's not a developer. So, something I was super interested in. This story came about because I'm hanging out here in Austin, Texas, which really... Austin, Texas like was already a magnet, but it really became a winner during COVID. Texas is relatively open and lax, and there's lots of open space. And uh, uh, it's very entrepreneurial. So a lot of folks in the community have come here. And one of the things I've just been noticing about so many... Listeners, of the pod, and folks in the community, is just how they're upping their game, having a great deal more resources and leveraging outside capital. And as you get more entrepreneurial chops, this increasingly becomes an opportunity. And that's what's happening for someone I've known a long time. His name is Alan Van Toy, and he's a longtime member of the DC. I remember hanging out with him back in the 2013, 14 era when so many entrepreneurs were uh, hanging out in Vietnam today we're going to talk about his story and evolution and, and just see it in real time how the thing from the outside about growing an entrepreneurial career, like we talked about last week, it's so hard to know what's going to happen in advance. Like with a job or a career that's legible, you can sort of say it with entrepreneurship, it's a process. And, and today, we are going to peer inside one entrepreneur who's upping his game. So just a lowdown on his current business, crewfire.com, which is a brand ambassador platform that helps e-commerce brands turn their customers into an army of brand ambassadors. And here's the cool part. The pricing starts at $1,000 recurring a month and can go up in some cases to five grand as we've recorded this episode Crewfire is a startup. It is moving fast. So in this show, we're going to get into how you can start to develop a SaaS without necessarily having a developer partner at the very beginning, and how to attract that person if and when you need them. We also nerd out on the lore of Vietnam and how and why Alan rebooted Crewfire after a really difficult period. So we started out by talking about why this time Alan's seeking outside investment for Crewfire.
0: Earlier in my entrepreneurial career, I was always on the fence of like, you know, bootstrapping and growing a nice solid business. You know, after doing that a few times and experiencing a few like micro exits over the last like 10 years, now we're finally in a position where we have a, we have an opportunity. We have a business that really has an opportunity to scale into the, we believe, tens and hundreds of millions of dollars in annual revenue. And now also we have like the ambition to do it. Which wasn't true, you know, ten years ago when I started my first SaaS business. For me then, like, you know, a nice six-figure, seven-figure outcome would be great, and that wouldn't appeal to a venture investor. But now, having achieved some of those earlier benchmarks in my career, my goalposts, so to speak, have moved, and so now we're, we're looking for a bigger outcome. What's your constraint right now to growth? It's a few things with our higher ticket and with the kind of platform that we're doing. It's it's not really a self-service software product. Like, We really need a sales team to take this to market. That's one thing that we learned early on. We had a free trial and a, and a low ticket earlier on. It's kind of an enterprise sale. Like mid-market. It's punching into mid-market. And so like ease of onboarding, decreasing friction to onboarding, it really didn't make for strong customer success because of the amount of investment that it takes to really make a program like this work. I mean, we need salespeople. We need account managers. We, we need customer success to really, a, take this thing to market, get this thing in front of the right decision makers for these mid market and eventually enterprise brands. And b, you know, we need to manage them. It's not like a self serve SaaS tool. Like you sign up for Gmail or Dropbox, you start using it on your own, and you're off for the races. With this, we have to like invest in onboarding, and customer success, and and knowledge transfer. And that's like bottom of the funnel, and then into the product. You know, there's still there's a lot of marketing work to do. Right now, it's just one engineer. It's just my CTO. We are running into limitations like, you know, this thing works on Shopify. It'll also work for WooCommerce and Magento, but that's triple the surface area for integration work that needs to be done. Right now, it's working great on mobile web, but we don't have iOS and Android apps. And there's a lot we could do with iOS and Android apps. I have on my list here like high leverage roles that we need to bring on board as quickly as possible in 2021. And it includes sales, customer success, marketing and then engineering slash development and product. So what you've essentially done is you've
1: created this nugget of like a positive return. And now you're going to put it in front of some of the sharpest minds in internet business and say, capitalize my nugget,
0: essentially. Exactly. You know, the greatest minds, it's more than just the capital. We're confident now that we have an opportunity that we can legitimately go to world-class investors, you know, people that have I haven't scaled a a SaaS business beyond seven figures before. I don't know what operations looks like. I've never scaled a sales team. I've never sold to enterprise. These are solved questions. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. And that wisdom is out there for any bootstrappers that want to go that route as well. But if you get these like world-class, whether it's operators or product designers or go-to market. Enterprise or mid market go to market, you know, geniuses on your cap table and they're out there, you know, they have a vested interest. They can open doors.
1: Investors can like pump their investment, right? Like, so like, I got a stake at your company and now, like, here's 25 clients, bro. Exactly. (laughs) Right. I'm pumping my investment. Yeah, totally. Yeah. This is a weird question, but I feel compelled to ask because, like, I met you in very different circumstances and I want to go through your story here in just a minute. But before we do that, I just want to ask you about. Like, can you let us know a little bit about your lifestyle?
0: I'm working from home. I moved to Austin, Texas in October. Maybe I can back up a touch there. You know, you and I met in Vietnam. I was in Vietnam as recently as March, 2020. And right at the beginning of March, I went home, Not had nothing to do with COVID, but uh, I was I was celebrating uh, some family stuff first week of March. I was only supposed to be in town for two weeks, but then fate had other ideas and, and COVID, you know, the viral curtain shut the world down. And so I stayed with my parents for eight months. But then uh, as it got colder, where do your folks live? Bethesda, Maryland. So outside DC. Yeah. As you know, like Southeast Asia is beautiful, tropical, sunny and warm. And so this body kind of acclimated to that over the last six years. And (laughs) I thought to myself, well, Austin, Texas sounds awfully nice right about now. So moved to Austin end of October. I got a house here next to Zilker Park. And yeah, I just work from home. I have an office here. I'm 33 now. And so, you know, when you and I met in Vietnam, I was in my you know mid-20s and uh, optimized for location independence and freedom and, and adventure and, and travel. And then for me, you know, as I hit like 30 into my 30s, the things you optimize for in life change as you reach different chapters. And for me, it was proximity to family, proximity to friends in the United States. For me, Austin has provided that those things, you know, close enough to my family, same time zone. I can call them after lunch, which is a luxury that's not afforded to, you know, me while I'm in Asia. And the lifestyle is great, great lifestyle balance, great community of entrepreneurs here. So, hasn't been super social. It's tough to give it a full eval just at the moment.
1: It is a common move in the community to optimize for like adventure and almost that kind of like solitude from real life and real responsibilities in order to 100% focus on your business. And often that's to, you know, South America or to often Asia or Europe and to try to, hang around with a crew of people who are doing the same. And then as, as your like business interests mature a little bit and you don't need to have that like maniacal, like 12 hour a day, like I get my food delivered to my door. It's the perfect macro combination. Like I take some kind of focus drug and there, there is this kind of like maniacal nature to a lot of business oriented nomadism. And then as folks get some traction in their career, You know, yeah, you start to sort of stair step your way back, like back to across the globe to Europe. And then eventually, a lot of people do end up back in their home countries. I want to go back and sort through some of the early days stuff. Specifically, I'm curious as to
0: what got you in the game. Oh, man. Yeah. I can point to a few. I can really trace early entrepreneurial kind of seeds back to like high school and college. You know, in high school, I was, uh, you know, (laughs) well, to be honest, I was, I was selling weed. Not a lot, you know, (laughs) just a little bit. I'll say this just a little bit, but enough where I wasn't, I like, I realized that there was an alternative to selling my time for nine bucks an hour or 10 bucks an hour, the alternatives to, you know, high school jobs. And when I realized that, I mean, obviously I wasn't (laughs) going to do that for life and it was stressful, you know, the illegality of it at the time. But, you know, when I when I realized that there was an alternative to selling, like, I I couldn't go back to working at the pool. I was I worked at like the pool cafe, you know, summers in high school. And, you know, that that was over. If
1: more people were honest on this podcast, you'd hear more stories like this. You got to be willing to do things other people aren't.
0: Yeah. And it's 2021. I mean, like, it's weed, you know, what's the big deal. (laughs) But oh, God. So and then in college. (laughs) I thought I was going to work in the music industry, and I went to University of Maryland, which is not exactly a hotbed for music industry courses or extracurriculars. So, you know, I looked around; and there were there were no options for it. And so, along with a, a few friends, uh, as a freshman, we were freshmen. We started the Maryland Music Business Society, and it like immediately hit, and we got like hundreds of members, and we started throwing concerts, and we we actually became profitable. We were making like five, six thousand bucks a month as a student organization. From their senior year of college, my roommate and I we uh, we read I, I forget which one was which, but one of us read for our work week. Wait, was it hard?
1: Sorry to interrupt. Was it hard to be responsible for so much revenue and like not
0: own it? Nah, I mean it was fun. I mean I was doing all sorts of extracurriculars. I was also promoting concerts under an actual company, Ting Tang Promo. Ting Tang Promo and I was a brand manager for Red Bull. I was running the MMBS. I mean, I was, I was doing too much. I was doing too much shit, but it was, it was all fun. There's that entrepreneurial ADD was on full throttle at that time, but yeah. And we did things like we would organize like New York trips, like field trips to New York and, and meet with live nation and meet with AEG and meet with like Rolling Stone. And we could fund that from like this concert money.
1: Wow. So it sounds like you really like created an excellent education for yourself.
0: Yeah, it was fun. I, I learned I learned early enough that, I, that actually working in the music industry was not a good idea at all anyway. So that, that was like the most important thing I learned. A, there's not that much capital floating around the music industry. And B, it's not like a great niche or industry to sell or work in because it's kind of toxic and there's a lot of ego. They're not like getting together in conferences and message boards and following influencers or bloggers and, and really working on their craft all the time. It's really just a lot of like stress and ego and not a lot of money floating around. I've noticed that. Why do you think that's the case? (sighs) I think first off that there's just all these glamour industries, music, entertainment, fashion. There's so much supply of young, you know, kind of naive, if you will, like uh, entrance into the industry. Demand is fixed. And so the, the salaries, the amount of money, like the amount of money that these like Marketing associates at record labels make it's laughable. I mean I don't know something about the the nightlife industry it just attracts a lot of ego and a lot of toxicity i also i don't want to trivialize the the thing that I'm so passionate about by trying to make it my career. I'd rather you know achieve my financial goals somewhere else and then just like and then just be able to enjoy that as recreation and as a fan, I wanted to keep that keep it playful yeah
1: a lot of us make that choice early in our careers too because you know the first entrepreneurial instinct is to jump into an industry you love but i think an important entrepreneurial skill is realizing that systems thinking the entrepreneurial skill set is flexible across niche and industry and so making that choice makes a big difference you know i was speaking with someone today who's like wants to do scheduling software and it was like the niche that he knew about that inspired the idea to like make scheduling software but my first instinct was like, ooh, that's that industry sucks. <laughs> you know, it like sucks for these reasons. But like that kind of solution in a better industry could be amazing. What's an emergent industry that needs scheduling that can learn from all these other shitty niches? And now it's that kind of thinking that I think you're demonstrating right now. So that's interesting. Okay, so your senior year, you're hanging out with your friends, and you read the four hour work week.
0: Yeah, like I read for our work week. The same time, my roommate was reading Rich Dad Poor Dad, and then we were both like, "Dude, you have to read this book. It's a game changer." And we we traded and and so we both read for our work week and Rich Dad Poor Dad in the same like couple weeks stretch. And you know those two books. First off, you talk to anybody in our internet entrepreneur digital nomad community, and those two are like the pillars, right? I mean, everybody's read them. And you know what they do is they illuminate an alternative path. This is like 2010, right? So. It wasn't like today where there's great, amazing podcasts. And so those books illuminate this path towards like, okay, like build assets that generate income for you while you sleep. You know, that's the path to wealth or, um, you know, redefining what asset even means. For our work week, like lifestyle design, location independence, like you can create a lifestyle that is alternative to this nine to five grind. Well, how did you implement it? I also was interested in technology and mobile, like iPhone had come out in 2007, 2008, and it became this new canvas for entrepreneurship. I paired that, I, that thinking with a third resource, which was, there's an entrepreneur named David Hanemeyer Hansen, or DHH for short, one of the founders of Basecamp and 37signals, also the creator of Ruby on Rails. And he gave a presentation at, at a program called Startup School in 2008. You can find this on YouTube, DHH Startup School. And in it he breaks down the economics of subscription software or what we all know or many of us now know as SaaS, S A A S, software as a service. He breaks down what I came to find is like the beauty of recurring revenue and if you can create a product, like in software or anything really that has a recurring revenue component meaning the customer pays on a monthly or some sort of recurring basis, you can build something that achieves your financial goals. And the numbers become way more digestible and way less intimidating. So, you know, just working backwards on some napkin math here, like if you want to build a million dollar a year business, which is which is great for anybody starting out, certainly any, uh, you know, college senior, like a million dollar a year business, like sign me up. A million dollars a year divided by 12 months a year, that's 83K a month that you need to achieve. If you need to achieve 83K a month and you can, that still might sound like a big number, but if you divide that by how much your product costs on a monthly basis, let's say it's just a low price $50 a month product. You need 1,600 customers paying 50 bucks a month to make 83K a month to make a million dollars a year. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, I don't need to create the next Facebook. I need to build a $50 a month product that I can sell to 1,600 people. Those numbers are extremely digestible for someone starting out.
1: And when David was giving that talk, he was talking about a bunch of techies sitting behind laptops now we're talking about a global market that's purchasing these sorts of products from their mobile devices and so the amount of people you can sell into has dramatically increased i love this idea of you know what you're demonstrating to me is like kind of entrepreneurship from first principles because there's two different polarities there's like the a lot of people start businesses that are adjacent to their last jobs. So it's like, hey, I I was like this kind of consultant for super super long and now I'm stepping out and doing my own thing and building a business around it. We all do a little bit of that, but we also do a little bit of like thinking from principles too, which is like combining these basic basic ideas and then choosing the next action based on the principle. We certainly do that every day in our business where we're doing the same napkin math. And so I just wanted to flag it up how powerful it is. For example, um, you know, we're starting a marketplace this week and the napkin math I'm doing is like, I want my sellers to sell a million dollars a month this year. And so that I need like 30 partners selling $3,000 a month, right? It's exciting. You know, yeah. it's, it's not that hard to get there. It's no. just 30 people. 30 people making three grand a month. It's so doable. Okay, so this DHH video, will definitely link it up.
0: So you doing this math, and then what? That just de-risked it for me. It was like, in you know, do I think that I could build something that people pay fifty bucks a month for? And look, that's to get to a million dollars a year. Like, I'd be happy if I was doing a quarter million a year. So now I only need to sell to four hundred people. Like that gave me the confidence that like, okay, I can do this. There's no risk here. But before I did it, I thought it would be good to work in a startup, in another startup, just to kind of get a lay of the land and, and and kind of see how other people are doing it. And so I looked for tech companies. I was in Maryland. I wanted to move to New York. And I was looking for jobs at tech companies in New York. And I found that Yelp was opening a sales office in New York City. And they were looking for sales reps. And so I applied and got that job for about eight or nine months. I was on the phone selling Yelp ad products to local businesses in like the New York, New Jersey area. And it was great. I learned how to sell. I learned how to use a CRM. I learned what a pipeline looks like, and I learned, you know, how to close deals at, you know, at the time, were three hundred bucks a month for these Yelp ads. It is awfully repetitive work. I will say that. That kind of kind of sent me on my way, and and from there, I, I kind of took stock at what ideas I had that I I believed I could sell for fifty bucks a month or a hundred bucks a month to what kind of customers I knew about. And the idea that I had was, you know, going back to my time as a working in the music industry among other jobs in the music industry i managed street marketing teams so there's a very niche kind of form of marketing not a, not many people know about but if you ever walk around a major city and you see posters promoting an event or flyers people handing out flyers or canvassing uh, on the streets those are often called street marketing teams and a lot of times these event promoters concert promoters and brands will spend thousands tens of thousands of dollars a month on printing out this marketing material And at the time in like 2011, I guess we're getting into 2012 now, there was no accountability there. There was no way for the brand to prove or the business to get proof of the work that was the printed material was actually making its way to, you know, onto bulletin boards and into hands of potential attendees. And so I had this idea the iPhone had come out a few years before, Instagram was blowing up. Instagram, of course, you could share photos and then see their locations. And I thought, why doesn't someone make like a mobile app that these street team members can take photos of the work that they're doing in the field, send it up into the cloud, and we can use the GPS location from the smartphone to map where every photo is posted from. And then back in the office, the management company can, or the, the promoter can get all these reports of all these this work that's been distributed, and we can show heat maps, we can show where every photo is posted, and it'll just drive more accountability in this space. And so I launched that in 2012. It's simplecrew.com. You can check it out. It's still running today. We got that out there and you know, got initial traction. We, was it 50 bucks a month? It was, and I think still is 50 bucks a month, which I, <laughs> uh, I at this point, I, I actually sold it to my business partner, my then business partner, still great friends. So we had a very amicable split. And uh, I think the price could raise significantly. That's something that I'd, I'd encourage most entrepreneurs to do. It's much easier to get to profitability and beyond uh, with, with higher ticket products. How did you build the software though? For me, I'm non-technical. I'm not an engineer.
1: Yeah. You're you're working, you're pumping phones at Yelp. Yeah. And you're dreaming up software, but you can't write code.
0: Yeah. A dime a dozen, you could business people with ideas who are looking for uh, looking for a technical co-founder, right? And so how do you stand out from that? And that's a a million it's like how do you find like a, a husband or a wife? You know, it's like there's there's no one way to do it, but I can tell you what worked for me. There's also, as there are a lot of business people looking for a technical co-founder, there's a lot of developers who aren't creative ideas people or who would like to start something, but they lack the marketing skill or the the ability to envision the product or they lack the sales ability. And so there are counterparts to this archetype that I was. As a non-technical co-founder with an idea, there's a lot that you can do to make progress on a software idea that you have that uh, has nothing to do with code, that has nothing to do with the software itself, but has everything to do with Building momentum around this concept and separating yourself from the world of other business guys with ideas or guys or girls with ideas. And so those things can include things like designing the prototypes and designing the software. You you can do that in, in Sketch or in Figma or even in Canva. And then you can start interviewing your target customers and start building a database of, you know, first 10, then 25, then 50, then 100 conversations that you've had with your target market, walking through the prototype and then asking them how much they'd pay for it. And then maybe even getting LOIs, letter of intents, or even pre-selling this thing. I did all that. I put up the website. I got the domain. I designed the marketing for it. and I got up a landing page. Doing all the things about creating a software product that weren't actually creating the software. And then when I would go to talk to developers, I wasn't just a business guy with an idea anymore. I was a business guy with a vision and execution and a hundred recordings of customer development conversations with a visual prototype that now the the engineer doesn't have to look at it and try and think through what it might look like. They can look at that and be like, oh, I can build that. Oh, and it's pre-sold for, you know, this thing will launch with revenue.
1: By the way, this is how you get any job too, is that you're already doing the job better than whoever they have there right now. You know, one of the things I was visualizing as you start to continue to like the dominoes keep knocking down of having done all these important things is that the amount of equity you have to give up to that developer, you know, if you were to run it back 100 times or whatever, continues to decrease as you do these tasks. Now, if it's just idea and spitballing in a coffee bar, it's 50-50, right? And as you continue to knock down dominoes and perform more and more tasks, now the final domino would be something like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to take off that first S and I'm just going to have an ass as a service. And I'm going to start selling a service with a mix of... I'm going to have a few support folks that run the spreadsheet, that write the emails. Like 90% of software is just a bunch of other software tied together. To deliver the desired result for the client. Now, all of a sudden, you're selling services and you just hire the developer. Still, there's a strong argument for a technical co founder, someone who shares your vision and is a business partner. But you can see, like, the more you take your advice, the stronger uh, bargaining position, the easier it will be to recruit. So it's not just a recruiting thing, but it's also an equity
0: thing. There's so many no code solutions right now. You can piece together. A combination of existing, like Lego blocks of software, if you will, that don't really take an engineer to make happen. And you can create something that's valuable for a customer that you can charge tens or hundreds of dollars a month or or more just by putting it together and packaging it and bringing it to market. So, I've seen a lot of friends in our community that have done that. Yeah.
1: And then, yeah, you just kind of eat it backwards with software once you get technical people on, on board. Yeah, we'll have a lot of examples in house. I'm kind of on fire about this topic because, you know, like we're doing things via like email spreadsheets, Airtable plus this, plus that, plus that. There's like, you know, this kind of bundle of like nine different solutions that you kind of figure out. And all of a sudden you see a client like, bam, they want to pay for it because it's like really working for them. And you're like, ooh, if that were software, it would just happen faster and to more people. Sure. But you've proven
0: it, you know, and I, I'm in there. I'm actually using one of your um, asses, if you will. <laughs> your, <laughs> your guy, Alex, shout out to Alex at Dynamite Jobs. You know, we we've used Dynamite Jobs to, to find and connect with some, some amazing talent. And I can, you know, I can tell like there's, there's a bit of software there, but there's also a lot of uh, plumbing, you know, non-software plumbing or, or tools, other tools like Airtable and, oh yeah, and then uh, Alex's time, I'm sure, maybe other contractors that you have in the background and that's recurring revenue for you. You know, you got me on recurring revenue and you have like a high ticket, you know, multi-thousand dollar upsell. That's a uh, primarily in an, an ass. And so we're going with that, by the way. I think you, I think that's coined.
1: <laughs> if you run a growing seven or eight figure remote company, your next productive team member could be just one simple phone call away. Check it out. I'm running an ad for our own stuff. How cool. This week's sponsor is our very own done-for-you recruiting service for remote companies, courtesy of dynamitejobs.com. You can learn more at dynamitejobs.com slash remote-recruiting. Our process starts with a simple, free, no-obligation phone call with one of our senior recruiters and often the boss man himself. We'll get a sense for your company, your mission, the candidates you're seeking. We then go out and execute the entire job search on your behalf That includes marketing to our database as well as taking a lot of the budget from the service fee and going out and proactively marketing your job to third-party sites, services, communities, and so on to ensure you get the best candidates for each individual job. Again, we know how to do all this stuff. We perform all the filtering, the interviews, and the assessments on your behalf. So basically, we're delivering you qualified candidates who are interested in your position, who understand your needs, and are looking to have that final conversation with you about you know, whether or not it's a good fit. So obviously hiring can be a total pain in the butt, but the team at Dynamite Jobs does this stuff every day. We understand remote-first businesses and have the systems and people in place do the job quick and reliably on your behalf. So, With our new done-for-you recruiting services, you can stay focused or your team focused on what you guys do best, and we'll take care of the hiring on your behalf. To learn more, head on over to dynamitejobs.com slash remote recruiting, schedule a call or drop us an email team at dynamitejobs.com. So Alan, through doing extensive research and even making pre-sales for his field team management SaaS called Simple Crew, partnered with technical co-founder Mike McCabe, who agreed to build it out.
0: Along other things, we applied to Startup Chile which is a program run by the government of, of Chile, the South American country. They take 100 companies into six-month batches, every batch of 100 companies, and they give each company a $40,000 grant. So it's equity-free, keep all your equity. You move down to South America for six months with 99 other companies from around the world. And it's epic. I mean, startupchile.org, cannot recommend it more highly. I mean, it's, it was so fun. It was such a cultural experience And it was kind of like college, except it's with entrepreneurs from all around the world, and everybody's got forty thousand dollars. So that gave us, you know, six months of runway plus a little extra. And we came out of that program doing about two thousand dollars a month in revenue. So we were each taking home a thousand bucks a month, or a little under at the time. Again, four-hour work week was ringing around in my in my ears through all that. And and in in Chile, we're you know very much proving that we're location independent. And I met someone named. Andrew Michael Todd, who was in the start of Chile batch after me. And I had told him, I'm, I'm Vietnamese American. And I told him at the time that I was thinking about going to Vietnam after Chile. And he said, Oh, you got to join the Dynamite Circle. That's actually how I came to join your community and connect with the people in, in the DC and, and find the Tropical MBA. And here we are. What was it like moving to Vietnam? So, moved to Vietnam in 2000, early 2014. I had joined, so after Chile, I moved back home for two or three months. And the suburbs of the United States feel so bland after you've had you know, your first living abroad experience. Vietnam called to me for a lot of reasons. I, I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm Vietnamese American. My parents were born in Vietnam. I, I wanted to understand more about what that, what that side of my you know, lineage meant. So I, I landed in Vietnam at, like, in the afternoon. This is your first time in Vietnam, the country? It was my second time I'd visited when I was 16. I had no notion of how long I was going to stay. I was just checking it out. But uh, my friend Tom, who I'd actually gone to high school with, who had moved to Vietnam a few months before me and who was also in the D.C., he picked me up from my hotel on a motorbike and took me straight to a friend's house who was hosting this, like, co-working event. And I immediately plug in to this community within hours of landing. And then, of course, Vietnam, I don't have to tell you, like, it's just magical. You know, I blinked and six years had gone by and I, and I was 32. I still love it. So I know this is a digression, but like
1: I was just speaking about Vietnam and, and comparing it with other countries and like, why is it special? Like, wh- there's something about it. And for me, there's a, kind of a nexus of three things going on with Vietnamese culture. Number one, it's incredibly different than what we grew up with. That's a thing. But so is China. But so is Japan. Well, the second thing it's got going on is that it's somewhat legible. And there's a lot of reasons for this that are historical, whatever. But like, I can access it in a way that's harder for me with other cultures in the region. And then finally, there's a lot to admire about what's happening in Vietnam. And you kind of put all these things together and you just drop like the best food culture on top of it. And you're like, whoa, this place is... Cr-. And then they got a really wonderful piece of real estate. I'm curious as to what you think about that. Like, What are some of the reflections you have about Vietnam, the country for those who haven't visited yet?
0: I would say the accessibility and I would, I would build into that affordability. There, there is something to like being able to just afford the things that you need and not have to worry about it and be able to do that at a lower economic threshold than in the U S right. So on a thousand or 1500 bucks a month there, my rent was 250 bucks a month, 300 bucks a month in the early days. And I could eat whatever I wanted to and, and, and go out and enjoy the nightlife and not have to stress out about money. And it wasn't just me. It was all of our friends. And so unlike these like expensive American cities. And I'm assuming, you know, and this is coming from someone who likes living in cities as opposed to, you know, in more lesser expensive kind of rural areas. But like, here was a city that not only could I enjoy comfortably from an economic standpoint, but all of our friends could too. And so we had time to like hang out and enjoy each other, enjoy and get to know one another. And there was amazing culture to explore. I'm a fan of the nightlife and the nightlife in Ho Chi Minh City is just, it's just amazing. I fell in love with the place. I would die there if it were a you know closer to the US with a easier time zone to communicate with. I think that was a big thing you know we touched on earlier. like among the things that I that you know life wasn't 100 percent optimized in Vietnam, but one of them is like with the time zone disparity between the the east to the west, it's just harder to maintain relationships and you know have that casual phone call. And as my parents you know punch up you know into their you know closer and closer to 80. That relationship is is meaningful and and is important to nurture, but uh, all that to say, you know, I, I still have love for Vietnam, and every year that passes, you know, I will I will always spend time in Vietnam every year if I can if I can have it my way.
1: Let's talk then about what happened with the business. So you're, you say you left us off with you're meeting a bunch of entrepreneurs now. You're embedded in an affordable place, and you're making about a thousand bucks a month.
0: Yeah. So. We grew Simple Crew to 10K a month and maybe a little bit more over the course of a few years. But what we found, is we've, we thought we hit like a local maximum on that business. We were selling to, and still some of the biggest music festivals and concert promoters in the US, like Live Nation and Electric Daisy Carnival, Coachella and Lollapalooza were, are using Simple Crew. But the most you can get from them for this tool is like a couple hundred bucks a month. And so kind of capped out. And so we were thinking about other ideas we watched how some of our customers were using simple crew and again, you know, simple crew is a photo sharing app. So you're taking photos with your smartphone and that's getting put into this kind of like management view. And we saw that some of these concert promoters were asking their team members to not just, you know, hang up posters and hand out flyers, but also to post on Facebook and post on Twitter about the events that they're promoting and then take a photo of their laptop screen with simple crew to report that that post was done to To get credit for that work, and we saw that, and we thought, oh, this is, this is backwards, and this is an opportunity. Instead of people, you know, taking a photo of their laptop screen to report work they've done on one digital platform like Facebook to another digital platform like Simple Crew, we could just create an app that would make it easy for these brands to suggest content for people to share on Facebook and Twitter. Like with a couple clicks, those team members can share it, and then we can actually make that post directly to that network through the API and then track, you know, who had shared it and make this streamline, like, you know, kind of social media ambassador software. And so that was the genesis for the idea for Crewfire as far back as 2015. We had that idea, we built it and we launched it. We got it up to, at the time, I think we got it as high as like 5k a month. And once we got it about there, I was living in Vietnam. Mike, my partner was living on the West coast of Canada. So extreme time zone difference. I wanted to focus on CrewFire, and he wanted to focus on Simple Crew. It was a good time for a very amicable uh, and friendly kind of split, where I would take CrewFire, he would take Simple Crew, and then because Simple Crew was a bit bigger at the time, he would actually pay me a little bit to exit that position and, and to just focus on the smaller business. We managed that split, and this was 2017. That kind of set us up for for me running CrewFire for the for the years after.
1: In 2008, you watched DHH pull out a napkin and put numbers on it. Fast forward to 2014, you're on the other side of the globe. You've gotten your napkin math to six figures of income. What would you do differently if you could, I mean, because that's a six-year period. If you could accelerate that curve, what might you advise yourself in retrospect?
0: Yeah, great question. So many things. First off, picking a better ideal customer. Who is your customer? How how well capitalized are they? How much cash is actually floating through this market or through this industry and how much of that are they able to allocate towards the pain or the problem that you're trying to solve? In this case, I'm speaking strictly through the lens of B2B, which is business to business software, B2B and then subscription software, which has been my, you know, my career. I do love selling to businesses because They have capital and they're actually investing in their businesses. It's a much easier model to get flowing. But even within B2B, you have people that are selling like a calendar software, like you mentioned earlier, like you're going to be competing with free tools like Calendly that have their product pretty dialed in. And so it's going to be hard to charge 50 bucks a month or 100 bucks a month or $1,000 a month. So I would encourage an up-and-coming entrepreneur to think, what can I sell for hundreds of dollars a month? What pain can I... Solve that's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars a month to this customer. Something else I might have done differently is, you know, to your point about skipping the software component at first and going with like services, we bootstrapped from literally zero and then we had a 40k grant. But even then, that's not really that much capital to build. Like software is time consuming and expensive. And then investing in growth, also, if you want to grow more quickly, can also be time consuming and expensive. And it would be nice to have a bit more capital early on to help accelerate some of that. And I don't mean going out and raising money, but I do mean if you have a services business and you can, with services businesses, you can, you can build cash flow much faster than a software business. I would do a service business in the niche that I was gonna sell into eventually and try and build up a six-figure capital base and then have all that leverage, the, the customers, the service, the team, and the capital. And the platform from which to launch a SaaS business, I think that would be a much faster way to meaningful profitability than just bootstrapping just software from zero.
1: I like that because um, you know it fits with some of the patterns we see. Of course, there's always a chance that you don't fit the pattern. So you don't want to dissuade people from doing what they see uniquely. However, it is easier to sell expensive shit than it is to sell cheap shit. This idea that you can go into a very specific, highly capitalized pain point with a clear sales pitch and say, give me this amount of money, we're going to solve that problem for you. That's a lot easier than what, like you said, Calendly is doing, which is build a very slick product you know, that scales out to thousands of users that people are happy to pay 10 bucks a month for or whatever. That's hard. It was always the same deal in the product manufacturing industry too. It's the same pattern of it's a lot easier to create like this very specific bespoke bar that's gonna work for like thirty hotels in the US and it costs like fifteen thousand bucks than it is to create like one bar that works in the dad's basement that he pays hundred and fifty bucks for and you know invites his buddies over to hang out at this bar. Like so we made custom bars and the higher our price point, the easier it was to sell for a variety of reasons. Sometimes I buy shit from Walmart and I'm like, how did they even make it for that? <laughs>
0: like, <laughs> Seriously.
1: What was your emotion when like Crew Fire sort of landed in your lap and all of a sudden your buddy isn't there anymore and it's just you sitting in Vietnam with a $5,000 a month business?
0: The path from Crew Fire then to Crew Fire today, because if you remember from the, from the top of the call, like, I'm, Crew Fire is the business that I'm ramping up today. It's nonlinear. And it's, it's frankly, it's like a different business today. What happened immediately after I took over this business, so 2017, if you remember, Trump got elected in 2016, and there was this immediate blowback and outrage on Facebook, and there was this data sharing scandal that Facebook got wrapped up in because a kind of like growth hacking service company called Cambridge Analytica helped Trump get elected, helped Brexit happen, and they did that through like some sneaky workarounds on the Facebook platform, abusing the Facebook API. Well, we were using the Facebook API. We depended on it. And in the wake of this Cambridge Analytica data scandal, Facebook cut off API access for a ton of third-party developers. We lost Facebook API access and our Facebook feature for like three weeks and lost like most of our revenue. We went from like 5K a month to like 1.5K a month within like months of me doing this deal with Mike. And it would have sucked more but for the good fortune of the crypto boom happening also at the same time, also at the end of 2017, in 2014, when I, I first moved to Vietnam and we had hired some team members in Vietnam, the cheapest way to send them money actually was Bitcoin because of PayPal fees. I've been using Bitcoin for like three years when like this 2017 crypto boom happened and I just got swept away in it and Crewfire, you know kind of flatlined it under 2K a month. And I took my team from that and we started doing services for crypto projects. And that led to a service business in, in the, you know, serving crypto projects and then being a software and a product guy that went on to become two other products that I launched in the crypto space. They became my main focus for, from that point, 2017, until right up until the beginning of COVID actually. Sold one at the end of 2019. It, it became my my second little micro exit. The other product we kind of open sourced and it's free to use now. All these products are still running. You can check out Chainfuel.com. It's a Telegram anti-spam and analytics tool that a lot of crypto projects use. We built and sold that, and then Telefuel.com. I built and open sourced, and it's a um, alternative Telegram client that crypto communities and crypto power users can use to manage their Telegram chats. Still super passionate involved in, in the crypto space. But what happened is I wound down those down those other two products right at the beginning of 2020, COVID happened. I found myself with all this free time on my hands again for the first time in years. And Crewfire was just sitting there. And it became my pandemic project at the beginning of 2020. Again, it was a free trial, $59 a month, along with my new co-founder, new business partner, uh, new developer, uh, Frederick. We started having conversations with with customers and we took down the free trial and we made it a a demo call. So they would have to talk to me in order to get into the product. Because we'd been around for four or five years at that point, we were getting a decent amount of traffic and inbound just from old content that I put up on the blog and on YouTube. And all sorts of people are searching for brand ambassador related keywords. Not all of them would would make the perfect ideal customer. So I was having these conversations to try and find out, okay, who exactly are we trying to serve? Are we going to serve political advocacy groups? Are we going to serve information product entrepreneurs? Are we going to serve e-commerce brands? Through enough conversations, I got clearer and clearer on a few key things that really set us up for the end of 2020 and for now what Crewfire is now my fastest growing business that I've ever done. The insights that that these conversations uncovered were. Who is the the target customer, which became these direct-to-consumer e-commerce brands on Shopify? What were the features that were important to them? Things like a Shopify integration where we can do coupon codes and referral links. What kind of value could we create for them? And then what kind of price points would that value support? You know, I don't want to make it sound like it was a, you know, lightning bolt eureka moment that happened, you know, immediately in the spring, that spring 2020. But we had an idea of that direction early on and we started building for it raised prices pretty quickly after shipping some of these features from 59 a month to 99 a month to 199 a month to 300 a month and then we started billing annually 3600 a year 6k a year 12k a year and that set us up for like lumpy cash flow we were getting thousands of dollars from these deals just to kind of validated the pain that we were solving for the customer and the price point that that would go on to uh to support
1: that's exciting. It sounds like, you know, one of the thoughts that occurred to me is like, this is what entrepreneurial insurance looks like. You know, people outside of our community, like, I just hear people talk about their 401ks or their insurance policy. They just want everything that to look so stable and solid. But there's a stability in what you're describing the ability to own multiple different assets, to be able to turn focus on a dime, to be able to have fun with it, variety. And expose yourself to incredible upside. What part of your story do you feel motivated to share with the listening audience in the sense of what do you want to impart to them about what can they learn from, from your journey?
0: Maybe what I would say is not directly business advice, but it's a common theme. My roommate is a young entrepreneur who just moved to Austin. He's like 10 years, more than 10 years younger than me. The thing that keeps coming up in my life that I was conscious of and and that I'm sharing with him is like, be conscious of how the things in your, the things that you're optimizing for in life, they evolve and change over time. So, like, when I was in my mid 20s or early 20s or mid 20s, late 20s, it was like adventure and culture and travel and experiencing the world. And it, it didn't occur to me then that like that would change significantly. But as I hit 30 and 31, you know, we talked about the importance for me now of like, optimizing for the relationships with my family, time spent with parents, time spent with my my sister and brother-in-law and their, you know, the child that they'll soon have. Part of the beauty of the, I mean, location-independent entrepreneurial journey is that you have that optionality for your lifestyle to evolve as what you want evolves instead of being locked into one thing. You don't have to kind of always flex that location-independence too. This is something that Mark Manson wrote beautifully about in, in one of his books. I forget. Maybe it's the subtle art. But it's like, you know, you have that freedom, but sometimes like, you know, that freedom can manifest itself as like choosing to take on responsibilities over time, like, like family or like getting a dog, which haven't gotten there quite yet. But, um, (laughs) that's something I'm still learning. You know, I'm still working on that.
1: It's funny though. You mentioned it, like you do that napkin math. You started with that million dollar thought experiment for many young entrepreneurs. It's $10,000 a month is the dream business. If it's location independent and it's 10 grand a month, you know, but as you get older, you realize that, well, you might want more capital to do different sorts of things with the rest of your life. And that maintaining a $10,000 a month business might not be it.
0: Sure, <laughs> It's like a new journey, right? And I could very well like raise this money and, and, and learn the hard way that like there are downsides to it, to raising money. And I'm sure, you know, it's not, nothing is ever all just sunshine and rainbows. You kind of you know take all the inputs you you learn from people that came before you and then you kind of make a calculated bet based on what you know and for, for me i i get that sense now that you know it's a new adventure something that uh, that i think we can manage and pull off and, and be successful with and and learn along the way so it's uh like you said cap downside unlimited upside
1: wow well, and thanks for joining us on the pod we appreciate it thank
0: you for having me dan
1: Big shout out to Alan Van Toy for coming by the show and sharing so openly and check out what he's up to over at crewfire.com. We'd love to hear what you think about this episode. Our email inboxes are open for your comment. That's it. Thank you for joining us. Have a great day. Go make a cold call or something. We'll be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.